It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down American loser the day I was born Hello, welcome back to another episode of American Loser. Uh, my name is KP Burke. I'm going to be your host this week. This is the podcast that puts the spotlight firmly on second place. Uh, it has been called a lot of interesting things. It's been called um, PBS for Alcoholics, uh, NPR with F-bombs. And our guest today, Lynette Palladino, had a very interesting one. Um, Lynette, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Katie? Okay, no problem. Lean into the mic for me a little bit here. Sure. Thank you. Um, so you're a comic, a very, very funny comic, too, by the way. I've had a chance to work with you a bunch. Thank you, sir. And you've gotten uh, some very nice shout-outs from the legendary Dave Attell that I've been in the room to watch and witness. So very cool stuff there. And it's, it's wild. You're also very humble, too, so you're downplaying it right now. <laughs> but I believe you just had a term for the show, because you listen to the show, which I appreciate. I do. I love the show. And um, you just had a, a quote um, that I think we might have to steal and put on business cards. Uh, what was the description of the show? Uh, your podcast is for people who like revisionist history but aren't afraid to admit they like McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got called a garbage person the other day. because Why? Uh, Well, I was bringing um, – I was bringing uh, – my, a friend of mine, she wanted uh, espresso. And um, first of all, I put an X in it because I'm, you know, I think it's espresso still, which is not good. And then um, I went to Dunkin' Donuts for the said espresso. <laughs> and they looked at me like, what? And I was like, yeah, just like a double thing. And they're like, do you want it in like a cold brew? And I was like, no, just whatever she wants. And they hand me a little tiny cup, like maybe the third of a size of a regular cup. And they might have just put like non-dairy creamer in there. I, I had no clue what it was. But I brought it to her, and when I handed it to my friend, she just looked at me. She just goes, oh, you're, you're, you're fucking trash. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what espresso is or yeah. how to spell it. No, I uh, – order it, apparently. <laughs> yeah, complete lack of culture here, which um, is funny. By the way, the other uh, uh, voice uh, on the microphone over here is uh, my sister, Carrie Burke, the meanest girl in New Jersey. How are you? <laughs> um, good. How are you? Finally back in New Jersey. I hear you were down in Florida hanging out with South Beach Larry. Yes, and I got stuck there for a day. Well, that's a good thing, though. Yeah. She avoided a, a snowstorm here. And uh, you have uh, you may have noticed that no one's heavily breathing into the microphones behind the desk right now, which means that the big kahuna is not our sound engineer today. <laughs> Ming, how are you? You don't have a mic on you, do you? I, uh, <coughs> sorry. Uh, you don't have to. I'm, I'm doing good. I'll plug one in uh, just uh, in case I can uh, <laughs> launch into one of my trademark quips. Yeah, he, uh, he didn't see the part where uh, he was supposed to be here right now, so we'll give him some... Uh, some grief. I love how 20 years old he is. It's very good. So, um, no, but thank you, Ming. We're back here at a shared universe. Last week I had to do one on the fly. We recorded at a compound media in the city. And let me tell you, um, this is much more comfortable. <laughs> compound media is terrifying at times. But, um, uh, no, when I, when I met you, actually, the first time I met you was in uh, Morristown, New Jersey. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting because um, I thought Morristown was named after the guy who we're doing the episode about today. And uh, it turns out I'm wrong, all right? Morris is just a super popular name. Yeah. Like, your last name is Paladino? Yes. Are you related to every Paladino ever? None of them, actually. I know. Because everybody's an only child on my, in my family. 
No shit. Yeah, my dad was an only child. My dad's mom was an only child. My mother was an only child. I have zero family. Jeez. And uh, wow. you know what? It's weird because you're hanging out with two adopted kids right now. And, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, biologically, I don't know anybody in my family. Carrie got to meet a couple of her, but you have members of like, uh, you know, stepbrothers and so, or half brothers. Half brother, half sister. Your biological mother, too. That was pretty cool. I've yep. heard about people um, who were adopted doing ancestry.com to find their, or like people who were uh, test tube babies, like their mom was artificially inseminated. They go on ancestry.com and they end up finding their parents and stuff. It is wild. Um, we have a friend of mine named Ray who um, was designed in a gay laboratory. Um, yeah, he was pretty much, uh, we found he was a, te- he is blonde hair, blue eyed, extremely high IQ and, uh, gay as the day is long. All right. My buddy, Ray Aronson, <laughs> who is going to come on the show here eventually. Um, that's pretty cool. All that stuff works out. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. You ever watch, um, you ever watch Shark Tank? Uh, like once or twice. Okay. The, uh, I've seen some pretty cool pitches on that show, if you will. But, uh, I think we all get the concept, right? It's, you know, they open up the door. And they play the, the music, and then the guy has to walk up to a table full of investors and then pitch an idea to them to see if he can get financial backing, right? So uh, for today's episode, picture Thomas Jefferson uh, walking in, and his pitch to the Shark Tank is uh, the Declaration of Independence. And he thinks America is a pretty good investment, and here's an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of it. It sounds like it's going to be a pretty good deal, right? But um, the guy who winds up biting the shark that invests here is a guy by the name of Robert Morris. Have you ever heard of him, Carrie? I have not. Not even when I told you what the topic was a couple days no, ago? No, <laughs> but well, I thought of Morristown when you said Robert Morris. It, uh, it is. I was wrong, too, apparently. No, it's, uh, he's, he's an interesting guy here because um, if you have an idea or a concept, you always need money to make them happen. You know what I mean? So you need a money guy that's going to handle stuff. So we talk a lot about uh, Lynette and I are both New York Giants fans. Mm. All right. So obviously it's good to have a good coach and good players on the field, but you have to have a good GM. It's going to manage the money, make sure you can get the right people and the right contracts. So that's why our hero, Dave Gettleman, <laughs> uh, he's an interesting guy to compare him to. But uh, today's topic is going to be the American loser uh, in the strange case of Mr. Robert Morris. So what happens when you ha- make a great decision on an investment and you don't get the return that you're looking for, all right? Because Robert Morris, he did everything right, and I think we kind of burned him for it. So Robert Morris is known as the man who footed the bill for the American Revolution. He helped to create the American financial system. And uh, get this. If you want a, a good resume item, uh, if you were a signer of the Declaration of Independence, that'd be pretty cool, right, Lynette? Yeah, I'd take it. I think so. Now, it's a good credit. Well, what if you, um, what if you also signed the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of, the, of Confederation? So now you're two of the biggest documents of all time. Take it. Decent credit, right? It's not quite true TV, but we're somewhere, right? Not quite <laughs> seven seasons on AMC, but... <laughs> um, now, finally, uh, what if you went three for three and when you're one of the only people in American history to sign the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and also the U.S. Constitution? All right? Our boy Robert Morris is one of the only men to ever sign all three of them. So he goes three for three on that. Uh, he also becomes uh, uh, one of America's biggest landowners and the wealthiest men in early colonial America, and then somehow dies penniless. How is he not more famous just from having signed all three of those, though? Well, he is interesting because uh, a lot of it gets dwarfed because uh, we're all big on— uh, they uh, all did, too, right? Um, like Thomas Jefferson died penniless. Madison died penniless. Yeah, it's uh, America's a boomer bust kind of a place at this time. You're, it's a very good point. Um, 
Now, Morris is uh, is a little bit insane here because he actually winds up creating, on accident, uh, America's first real estate bubble, too. <laughs> so he fucks up a lot. But kind of a weird move here for him. But uh, he's born in Liverpool. And this is that cool thing where uh, the founding fathers of America, a lot of them are born in England. So it's weird because they always consider themselves Englishmen or whatever. But uh, born in Liverpool on January 20th, 1734, Robert Morris was raised by his maternal grandmother – due in part to his being born out of wedlock. So talking about adopted kids and test tube babies early on. And you see, now we brought it all the way back, Lynette. We're back. Yeah, bastards. So bastard son over here uh, was raised by uh, his maternal grandmother, like we said. And uh, his father was Robert Morris Sr. Now, if you have a bastard kid and you want to maybe, you know, not be on the hook financially for him, kind of a bad move to name the kid Jr. <laughs> it's, it's just not the right way to do things, I don't think. But um, by all accounts, his, uh, his father was Robert Morris Sr., who was a, a shipper of kind of considerable wealth, and this woman, uh, Elizabeth Murfett. And uh, Murfett just sounds too much like Smurfett now that I'm thinking about it. Now I'm just picturing a blue woman with blonde hair. Uh, but like we said, kind of a, a weird move here to name your son Jr., but by all accounts, Morris Sr. Uh, liked his son and uh, thought that he was a bright child. And he received a, a pretty good education and tutoring during his formative years. Uh, did you go to college, Lynette? I did. You did? Yeah. Well, now, I don't want to say what your other job is unless you're comfortable talking about it. But We can talk about it. Uh, Lynette is actually uh, an officer in the U.S. Army National Guard. Yeah. So pretty kick-ass. I'm intimidated by your military career, actually, because I, I talk about what I did in the Navy, and I essentially was a janitor for six years after high school. Stop it. No. <laughs> I get paid to be a nerd and read horrific things. No, but see, that's a that's a good gig to have, though. Uh, it it is and it isn't. It, this last tour uh, with ISIS, they really were brutal. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and agree. And like I said, <laughs> do you guys see the casualness with which she talked about that too? By the way, Ming, she's like, oh god, ISIS, we're dealing with all that stuff. And I was like, majority of my time in the Navy. Yeah, you're like, uh, you know, man, uh, that 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 last shift at McDonald's, man, it was brutal. Like right. that's, that's how casually you talked about it. It was great. <laughs> You got to compartmentalize everything. Yeah, there kind of was a. Oh, I'm so tired. That was almost your attitude on that one. It's a. Yeah, you did a lot of really cool shit, and uh, that's why I'm honored to have you on here as a guest. Um, it is a. I'm, I'm almost. I feel like a giant pussy right now. Is what I'm trying to say to you guys. All right. It's okay. I, I think everyone I was in, do, needs their toilet cleaned at some point, though. It's also true. It's someone's got to do the job. Yeah, I did six years in the Navy, Lynette, and all I did was um, I was in Dubai for about ninety days. Otherwise, everything else I did was in the hull of a ship uh, floating somewhere outside of Jacksonville, Florida. Really? Yeah. I don't think I'm going to talk about the military anymore. You joined the Navy to see the world. Like, they have the best ports and stuff mm -hmm. and best duty stations. Well, I got the best. Jacksonville, Florida, home of the Jaguars. Oh. Well, it's better than Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, the reason I chose to join um, the uh, the U.S. Navy is because you uh, had to get stationed near water. Yes. So I thought that was enough. <laughs> I agree. I made such a mistake joining the Army. But uh, in my defense, y'all have way too many uniforms. You got like winter whites, summer whites, khakis, black and tans. Well, oh, so, so many uniforms. Fun story about the Navy. Uh, we love fashion. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's a, it's a weird thing, too, because that whole uh, don't wear white after Labor Day thing, the Navy actually follows that, which is uncomfortable. So, <laughs> um, I apologize here. I'm going to uh, go back into uh, Mr. Robert Morris. Uh, I just wanted to unpack that because you're a very interesting guest. I wish I did an interview show sometimes. But uh, 
1747, Morris now moves to the American colonies. He heads over to uh, Maryland, or known as uh, Maryland back then, because that's where all the Catholics were, to uh, join his father in the lucrative tobacco business that he owned, which is – I mean, imagine coming to America – and uh, you don't really know your dad too much, but you know that he's doing well for himself, and you're going to go work in the tobacco industry, and everybody's telling you how smart you are, and you, know, you got this bright, promising future. Then you come over here, and within two years, uh, he now gets sent to Philadelphia, which in that time frame, by the way, Philadelphia is – people forget it was the first capital of, the, of the, the United States, if you will. But Philly was essentially, at this time, probably like more New York than New York. Like it was a very happy, bustling kind of a place. Everybody was – Super smart. A lot of loyalist contingencies down there, too. Yeah. Now, this is the weird, because you're a regular listener of the show, right? Mm-hmm. And I know Kerry's a listener of the show, too. Um, and then Ming edits the show, so he has to listen to the first 30 and last 15 <laughs> seconds of every episode. <laughs> so I thought this was interesting. Uh, when he gets sent to uh, Philadelphia, which is essentially the Rome of the colonies at the time, he apprentices as an accountant under the firm of Charles Willing. All right? And, and this guy is essentially one of the most prominent names in all of Philadelphia. Served as an early mayor of Philadelphia and was married, related by marriage, to the Shippen family. So, ready for a weird tie-in? The Shippen family, known as, uh, you know, who eventually would have a daughter named Peggy Shippen. With who, Benedict Arnold. Who was the woman who convinced Benedict Arnold to betray the country. So, goddamn Philly, man. Philly's in. <laughs> is that, okay, is that the weird left turn? Not yet. Okay. There's a couple more right. of them. That's what upsets you. I'm more like, fucking women. God, we've been fucking shit up since Adam and Eve. <laughs> <laughs> like, get it together, girls. It is, um, well, it's almost a power move when you're just sitting there like, how pretty is Peggy Shippen that Benedict Arnold betrayed an entire revolution for? I wonder that all the time. Like, nobody's pussy's that great. <laughs> <laughs> I told you guys she was going to be a good guest. Um, <laughs> well, at the time... Um, it was interesting, too, because uh, Philly had uh, the most taverns of anywhere else in um, the, the colonies, if you will, which is kind of hilarious because Willing, who is Charles Willing of this, this giant firm, is very impressed with a young Morris and literally quotes uh, as calling him a good, sober man. That that's why he was very pleased with him. Uh, Carrie, have you ever been called uh, a good, sober person? I've never been called a sober person. So. <laughs> also true. The, um, now, it's funny, too, because uh, you ever get a nickname ironically? No. No. It's um. This one amused me because uh, they think that he's a good sober man. So people thought that that was a virtuous thing. There's a lot of uh, indications that Robert Morris might have been called that sarcastically because he was a known freak. First of all, he was a big guy. All right, he's a big fat dude, right? And he had one of the biggest wine cellars in the American colonies and was frequently hanging out in taverns. It has to be a cool moment if you could go back in time and walk around Philadelphia at the dawn of the American Revolution and just realize it's a bunch of drunk dudes saying, I fucking taxes, man. I don't want to pay this shit. <laughs> so when you walk into a Dunkin' Donuts or a Quick Check at uh, you know uh, 8 o'clock in the morning and it's just a bunch of old men standing around a cup of coffee and they're just bitching about stuff, that's essentially the founding fathers, right? <laughs> that's, for lack of a better term here. Back then, Philly was pretty much like Hoboken at 2 a.m. A lot of drunk people. but um, It's my hometown. Is it, are you really? Yeah, I was born in Hoboken. No shit, I had no idea. I grew up between Hoboken and Dumont. Actually, on a previous episode, your dad mentioned D'Angelo's Farms. Yes. Which was the farm in my town. 
and it's like becoming this huge land dispute, not to go off on a tangent. No, um, South Beach Larry actually worked at D'Angelo Farms uh, during high school and his college years. Oh, wow. So we have to bring you on for another episode to meet him, too. I, I'm very upset I don't get to meet the DILF. It's, uh, he is a DILF of a dad, and it's uncomfortable. We've had to separate him from Jackie Byrne a couple of times where I was like, Jackie, control yourself, please. It's, it gets embarrassing. But he'll be back in, uh, in March, actually. So this is going to be – we're doing two episodes today. And then that'll be the uh, the last two episodes before we bring him back on. And then uh, I can already tell this is a good episode, so I need you to come back on for us, Lynette. Um, Morris becomes good friends with Charles's son. So if you're going to be friends with uh, – and you're going to think I'm shoehorning this in. If you're going to become friends with your uh, uh, the, the son of a business owner, okay, uh, kind of a good move to have here. They got a lot in common too. They're both working very close in the business. Uh, they're close in age and they both split their lives between the colonies and England. So – these two guys get to be pretty good friends here. When Morris's father passes away, Morris Sr., he leaves behind his estate and his fortune to Robert. And then a few years later, when Charles Willing dies, Thomas, his good buddy, inherits the bulk of the estate. Thomas now makes Robert a full partner in the firm. This is kind of cool. This is like that early on American dream shit. So Robert, who is essentially a bastard son raised in secret, who just was a bright kid, uh, is now one of the most wealthy men in the American colonies and a full-on partner from an apprenticeship of the biggest shipping firm in all of Philly. So, you know you've made it in Philly when you go to the same church as Benjamin Franklin. I think that's fair to say, right? He went to church? Uh, it, it is ironic, right, that Ben Franklin goes to church. Um, he uh, kind of an interesting guy um, in his own right, of course. Uh, we could talk about him forever. But uh, Ben Franklin probably had a lot to confess every Sunday, if we know anything <laughs> about his life. Fair point. So. Yeah, he had a couple STDs, right? It's um, Yeah, it's uh, there's a couple. DeStefano has a good joke about that, where it's just that that's his favorite founding father because he had VD. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, Franklin was a wild dude. He was pretty cool. Uh, in fact, his own son, we covered on another episode, one of his own sons was actually a loyalist to the crown, and Ben Franklin just kind of disowned him. Mm-hmm. So. When your dad, that's really a father-son rivalry right there. You know what I mean? That's like how Carrie pretends she's a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan just because, uh, you know, we're all Giants fans in our house. No, I'm just anti-Giants. I don't know why, all right? I don't know what Bill Parcells did to you, but it is what it is. Sorry. Get a uh, better quarterback. It's a, oh, it's, <laughs> what? we're heading into draft season. <laughs> I, I, I gotta go. I yeah, can't. Uh, I can't Ming. I have never, slander. I've never advocated for censorship on the show before. But I'm just going to need Carrie's mic turned down for a couple minutes. Here. I can do that, and uh, we'll be we'll bleep every word she says. So. Blasphemy. <laughs> um, now Morris uses his business connections and his travels uh, to learn the ins and outs of the world of uh, trading and shipping. Kind of a cool education on globalism, if you will. If you're literally you're a fat pudgy dude from England, and now uh, ships are taking you over to the Caribbean. You know what I mean? So you're seeing a lot of the, the world here. And you're making a lot of money while you do it. Free cruises, too. Also very true. Um, <laughs> yeah, you didn't have to be on Impractical Jokers to get on this cruise. Um, he shipped uh, mostly goods, but he did dabble a little bit. This is a sad part here. I always get bummed out when you hear about the Founding Fathers and you find out some of them were involved in the slave trade. Just not a good look. All right? Mm-hmm. Now, adjusted for inflation, one of my history professors at the aforementioned Brookdale Community College, uh, he broke down for us one time that uh, the slave trade – if you adjusted everything for inflation, a, a premier slave uh, would go for about the same price as a top-of-the-line Mercedes-Benz. So the idea that uh, some of the ships, when you look at it, you're like, man, these numbers are really low. He only brought uh, – one of the ships uh, documented that they only brought 17 slaves over as part of the slave trade. And 
they actually turned a profit on it because if you think about it, if you brought a ship over of 17 top of the line, Mercedes, Benz, BMWs, whatever you want to have, and then you sell it for that, you know, the exact amount, you're actually going to turn a profit on it even though it's a very small you know, return on things. But it wasn't really the most profitable business for him, so he actually didn't go too heavy by comparison into the slave trade uh, for the times. Now, uh, very interesting here. Do you know what the Stamp Act is, Lynette? That was a tax on all paper goods. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> Do you have any other guests would just sit there and be like, no, what is it? <laughs> and that's what uh, – God, you're a winner. Um, so, yeah, the Stamp Act is interesting. It is a tax on all paper goods. It essentially guaranteed that if you had any official documents, it had to have a seal from London on it. So they made themselves a mogul, essentially, that they're like, oh, by the way, and there's only one way to get this. You have to it's – it's a fuck you, pay me kind of a tax. So – uh, British Parliament is using that in order to help pay for a war that the colonists did not fight nor benefit from. It's known as the Seven Years' War, right? Uh, the tax would require all those printed articles, like we said, to be embossed with a stamp from London on them. And Morris was completely against this because uh, he's kind of – he's an interesting guy because uh, around this time you get the, the different competing ideologies for what the country is going to be. And uh, Morris is actually a great example of a uh, kind of a conservative, laissez-faire capitalist idea. So it's not necessarily like, you know, uh, he's not going to like the pro-life march or anything like that. But he does want to be like, hey, you know, why don't you guys, you know, let's not restrict trade. Let's do business here. So interesting guy. He is completely against this uh, Stamp Act and starts to recognize that the tension that's coming through uh, is going to be damaging to the country and also his business. So I'm, uh, there's, there's four of us here in studio right now. And I thought well, another cool thing that uh, one of my uh, professors told me was that uh, back around this time frame, one out of every three people actually supported the idea of the American Revolution. So if you were back in that time and you are technically an English citizen, right, and they have the greatest navy in the world and they have – you know, you're seeing all this stuff built around you and it's all borrowed on English ideas. Uh, I don't know that I would join the revolution. Yeah. I really don't, you know. I mean, Carrie, do you think you would or no? I think I would. I know you like. Here's yeah, the thing. Just to be the oddball out. Now, here's the problem. If uh, if the rest of our family was loyalists, Carrie would be a part of the revolution. That's how she would go here. <laughs> That's her uh, her buccaneers move on that one. But I don't know. You ever think about that, Lynette? Whether where you'd wind up on that? See, I'm such an Anglophile that I'd probably be like, what? <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> we can get through it. But that was his whole shtick, right? Like, yeah, Morris wanted to um, – he wanted reforms made, but he didn't want to break with England. Right. He didn't think we could win the war. And he's you – know, in, in a weird way, he was kind of right. There's, if we didn't get backed out by um, – France. Well, on a lot of stuff too. Um, we tried for Germany as well, and Germany just wasn't really interested. They sent supplies and stuff, but they, they weren't big on um, putting troops on the ground. Yeah, but at that time in Europe, you had Napoleon Bonaparte running amok. Um, he was uh, – he comes about um, – 10, 15 years later. Really? Because I think that this is one of the funniest things in history. But I think that, that was the issue, wasn't – weren't they – like France and Germany were constantly at war at that time? Yeah, because it's also that Germany's not real yet. Germany is still um, a bunch of those provinces. So you have like mm -hmm. uh, Saxony and Bavaria and the Habsburg uh, Kingdom and all that other stuff. And Prussia, whatever the fuck that was. Yeah, Prussia. It's uh, Could you imagine if someone said, I'm Prussian today? You would just look like, what are you saying? Are you, are you having a stroke? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but uh, I always thought this was funny is that um, – the American Revolution happens, and they are so hesitant to have this revolution. They're like, we really don't want to go to war with England. They actually have the most polite revolution ever, and it works out pretty good for everybody. France, a couple years later, reading a lot of the same philosophy, um, I, I want to say it was Rousseau that they were reading. Um, 
they start getting that whole intellectual contagion, to borrow a term from uh, Dan Carlin, that uh, now they go ahead and they start overthrowing their government, but they overthrow the uh, aristocracy uh, and the monarchy directly and uh, start beheading motherfuckers. Yeah, that was um – what Louis the Sixteenth and his uh, his wife Marie Antoinette. Yep, who uh, who was not a popular lady. No, um, but I mean, they even killed the kid. That was that's pretty savage. Yeah, they get yeah. brutal, and then uh, it's funny too because they wind up killing. Um, they pretty much kill uh, everybody who starts the revolution too. So it's this whole um, yeah. anyone who becomes a dissenter thing. So France, for um, for as good as they are at a lot of things, not quite as good at revolutions as the United States. Sorry, Paris. But we don't have any listeners in France, so I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> We're not going to lose them. I don't, I'm not even sure stand-up comedy has made it to France. It's uh, it's debatable, right? It's uh, <laughs> uh but um, no. Uh, Morris is a guy here because he doesn't want to. He considers himself an Englishman. So why would you want to go ahead and break from this now uh, until you start appealing to his uh, uh, financial sensibilities? So you can just buy this guy's loyalty, kind of a thing. But. Uh, like we said, he wanted these reforms. Didn't think we could win any sort of a military engagement against them. He is correct in that, by the way. There's no way that a bunch of militiamen from Rhode Island are going to defeat the world's greatest naval power. No, that's why we had to borrow Casimir Pulaski, right? Pretty much. We had to import Polish people to do our fighting for us. And then we also had uh, Marquis de Lafayette, obviously, who we talked about a little bit in the most uh, previous episode. Um, Morris uh, is actually placed on uh, – he doesn't get elected to the First Continental Congress, which I found out. But it's kind of cool because um, he's not on the Congress, but he's consulted by everyone on it. So you must have more of an influence as a consultant than you do as a member of the, the Congress. It's kind of weird. And then you don't have to sit through the meetings and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I just picture him like eating an apple, walking around like, you know, we should do. Right. And then kind of just go from there, man. But uh, he gets placed on uh, one of the guys that actually is uh, coming to Morris for counsel. Uh, pretty good guy. Uh, George Washington. Yeah, didn't know if you guys knew that. So if Father Washington is asking you what he should do, then you know maybe you have the ear of somebody who's pretty powerful. I feel like this is a Game of Thrones thing, though. There is a vibe with that. There really is, because um, you realize how many of the same people wind up being involved in the same things here. I mean, just imagine, like we said, that the three biggest documents in the, the founding of the country are all signed uh, by Robert Morris. Okay, uh, Ben Franklin falls in line with a lot of this stuff here, too. John Jay. I mean, these names that keep coming up in history. And then... The fact that Jefferson's going to write it and then also becomes president, that's kind of a cool thing too. But uh, Morris gets placed on something known as the Committee of Safety. Uh, now in the Army, uh, Lynette, specifically the National Guard, the Committee of Safety sounds like something you have to do on a stand-down weekend, right? Before you go on like a 96-hour liberty or something like that. Oh, my God. It sounds like all those PCCs, PC, uh, pre-combat checks, pre-combat mm-hmm. inspections – Check all these blocks so you can't turn around and say we fucked up. <laughs> well, the uh, the thing that always killed me with that because a committee of safety for the Navy would pretty much tell us like, hey, guys, it's Labor Day weekend. Don't go jet skiing, all right? Somebody dies every time. Just <laughs> fucking get your shit together. Don't drink and drive, guys, all right? Now, you sign this piece of paper saying you're not going to drink and drive. And um, we're on vacation. So um, Morris is now later elected to um, – Congress, but uh, he's not elected to the first Continental Congress. And this Committee of Safety, they put him on. He's actually in charge of the defense of Philadelphia. Um, he's not a military guy, but he's going to find a way to – what would you guys call that uh, in the Army? It's quartermasters, right? Yeah, supply chain management. Ah, see. They changed it to um, – it used to be storekeeper in the Navy. that They were SKs, and then they changed it to uh, logistics specialists, mm-hmm. so LSs. And um, 
it's weird when you change the name of something and then they think there's more esteem. Like logistics specialist sounds like somebody who works at Staples. That's just me. Storekeeper sounded a little It's a likeable. fancy name for it. Yeah, it's uh, they, they do try to um, – So we hum- should get me a fancy name for working at Home Depot. Well, uh, what department are you in right now? Uh, freight. freight. So supply chain. There you go. Yeah, you're a supply chain person. I don't know. We'll come up with some bullshit to call it later. <laughs> Got to get me a fancy term for that. Um, well, there's ways to do it. It's uh, like, for instance, uh, Ming is a sound engineer right now. Um, but really, he's just pushing two buttons, and I just don't know how to do them, so he wins. Yeah, record and stop. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. But but I do it right. That that that's that counts for something. I've right? never seen anyone press stop <laughs> like you. <laughs> what I like about Ming, though, too, is that Ming, uh, when he's uh, doing this, Ming will actually he'll bring up something on the board. Like Kahuna's already on his phone watching cartoons by this time. And then, <laughs> And then he looks up and he'll just be like, he'll, he'll say something back to me that we just said three minutes later. He's like, oh, that's like this. And I was like, God damn it, Christian. Um, <laughs> I have heard that, actually. <laughs> uh, I love that boy so much. It's uh, when, he, when he operates on a time delay. <laughs> um, but Morris goes ahead and he knows he's not going to be uh, able to contribute uh, militarily, but he can use uh, all of his business connections here to start making things happen. So the supply chain that we wind up getting that funds the uh, Continental Army uh, we put Morris in charge of getting gunpowder for the defense of Philadelphia. And this motherfucker's good. All right? He's very good at his job. Taps into all his business connections. Um, when you see bit, I guess it's almost like a Wall Street kind of a thing or like a um, – uh, what's the uh, what's the movie, the famous one? Um, Wolf of Wall Street? Well, Wolf of Wall Street's fascinating too. I almost imagine a DiCaprio-esque uh, performance here for what he's able to pull off. Where It's almost like Ari Gold too on Entourage where he just walks into a room, starts screaming, and then everybody gets all their shit together. And he kind of pulls it all off at the end. Um, pretty cool here. He actually gets made um, – he is later elected to the Congress, although he argues still that leaving England uh, is is not the right move. Um, and because he's a company man, though, he decides to absent himself from the vote in order to allow Pennsylvania's vote to leave to be unanimous. And uh, he's not one of these guys that's going to sit there and bitch and moan that he didn't get his way. He goes with the group consensus because that's what good business is, about compromise. And uh, I was told marriage is about compromise too. And then I just realized I bought a house and um, I didn't want to live there anymore. And uh, I didn't want to, you know. Uh, maybe too much compromise. Maybe that's what I'm getting. Yeah, this is turning into a therapy session. Marriage is 100% a business relationship, and if you don't go into it with that outlook, you're going to have a rough time. Unless you're both independently wealthy, and money just doesn't matter. Interesting. And I would never do it again. I love my husband. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I would never do that shit again. Um, I'm not saying I wouldn't have like a companion. Like, you know, we meet up on Friday, bump uglies, but Monday morning you're going back to your place. (laughs) Uh, Not to put you in a weird spot, Lynette, but um, my sister is currently about to get married. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she was until your comments. Um, (laughs) (laughs) People feel that way after I talk about motherhood, too. I don't know why. It's uh, That one you don't have to convince me not to do, so I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Carrie uh, Carrie found a loophole in um, the whole... (laughs) Well, then you're fine. You're fine. Be blissfully poor. It's good. Uh, All right, then. I'm good. Well, uh, at the time, it's actually, uh, you talked about being independently wealthy. Uh, Imagine having so much money you're able to fund the revolution out of your own pocket. Yeah. Kind of a good deal here. Is Um, that why he goes broke, though? Well, he winds up going broke because he gets overly ambitious. So there's almost that, um, 
We talk about Greek um, tragedy hero kind of thing here. There's a, there's almost a hubris to what happens with him. He gets so clever, he fucks himself out of money. I think it's like a government contracts issue, isn't it? Like uh... it does get yeah. <laughs> um, somebody made a comment uh, that it was uh, essentially if um, if a defense contractor was uh, able to pay himself with tax money that he was uh, acquiring. So it's it's very much a um, lining your pockets, lining your left pocket while emptying your right. So pretty good deal to have if you ask me. But um, Morris, uh, he is actually made the um, superintendent of finance because two months after he decides to absent himself from the vote uh, for Pennsylvania, uh, he actually winds up signing the Declaration of Independence. That's what a good dude this guy is. So, And also when you sign that piece of paper, you're essentially giving your – I mean we've all done dumb things before, right, uh, when you're drunk at 2 o'clock in the morning. But what these guys did is they actually wrote down their names – uh, on a giant middle finger to England and then said, come find me. And uh, it kind of worked out in our favor. But if it didn't, uh, they wouldn't have a, a really – they wouldn't have a hard time figuring out who was involved in the declaration since everybody wrote their goddamn name <laughs> on it. So, but uh, anyway, we make him the superintendent of finance, which every time I've read it, I've had to fix it in my brain because I make him the superintendent of France for no reason where there's a, a principal Skinner uh, wearing a beret kind of a thing. But uh, he effectively, as the superintendent of finance, uh, supplies all the goods, foods, and weapons for Washington's troops. Guy can't do shit. There's a, the killer Bill Parcells quote. And yes, I bring up Parcells a lot. I have a man crush on him. But uh, there's a great uh, quote by Bill Parcells when he was talking about uh, – when he was the head coach of the Patriots that uh, he said that uh, if you're going to let make me uh, – if I'm going to make you a meal, you would at least better let me shop for the groceries. And that was him kind of giving a middle finger to Robert Kraft saying – you're not letting me draft the players I want. So it's a, it's an interesting way to do things here because uh, our boy Morris is often funding the operation uh, out of his own pocket. And uh, you can't get Washington to have success on the field if you don't let them handle the money thing behind the scenes here. So he's uh, essentially also because of this, uh, when you have a shipping business, what do you have to have for a shipping business, Lynette? Men. Also true. Um, what are they going to bring the goods overseas on? Boats. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to have ships for the shipping business. Um, now, if you have a bunch of ships, uh, they made him the de facto head of the Navy. This one kind of messed with me. We're essentially owned – like I, I was in the Navy. I had a good time, right? But effectively, our first guy who was in charge of us is just the Jeff Bezos, <laughs> owner of Amazon. You know, it's a little unsettling, Carrie. I'm not very happy with it's it. It's an interesting way to put it though. It well, uh, the guy had the most knowledge. He knew all the – because uh, keep in mind we're going off of uh, old school uh, cartography maps and everything like that. He knows all the ins and outs of the trades. He's familiar with all the ports. I mean why wouldn't you make that guy the de facto head of the Navy? We don't quite have um, – uh, the next episode we're going to record after this, we're actually going to cover Stephen Decatur who's a pretty badass dude from the Barbary Pirate Wars. But uh, we didn't have those guys yet. You didn't really have a Navy. You essentially had a bunch of shipping vessels that were going to put a cannon on it and then raise an American flag. And uh, also we avoided confrontation with the British Navy at sea because uh, we stunk, all right? It was like Jets Patriots. You know, two times a year you just know you're going to get the shit kicked out of yourselves. <laughs> but they, uh, this whole trade at sea thing is kind of interesting too because now – this is what we were talking about earlier, Lynette – is uh, Morris is actually funding the operations, uh, yes, out of his own pocket, but also with the idea that he will be reimbursed because he says, hey, why don't we take some of this money for the revolution – uh, that you've given me a budget for my Navy. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that to hire privateers 
who are going to disrupt British trade who are paying me tribute back. So it's, uh, it's essentially one hand washing the other kind of a thing. So this leads to uh, some light discussions about potential corruption because Morris was using the revolution to create future business advantages for himself down the road. Uh, he uh, questionably hired those privateers we were talking about. And then also this uh, makeshift navy, these uh, increased allegations that Morris is maybe not um, the, uh, the, the squared, uh, sober, good man that uh, Charles Willing had referred to him as years earlier. Uh, a Continental Congress actually has to convene that winds up clearing him of charges a couple of years later. So we talked about um, we talked about like some of the names that pop up in history a lot here. Uh, I thought one interesting one is that uh, guess who Morris's like best friend was his BFF. So he had a couple of good mentors in his life, and then he winds up mentoring. I'll give you a hint. Um, he has a Broadway play named after him. Alexander Hamilton. You're in town, correct? Um, so. <laughs> He becomes good friends with Alexander Hamilton. Uh, the two of them share a lot of the, the very similar views on the financial institutions and everything like that. And they wind up creating the first true financial structure for the United States. Uh, it is on Morris's referral, I found this out, that Hamilton was actually made the secretary to the treasury. So you don't get that without knowing somebody. You know what I mean? It's like when a well, comic vouches for you at a club yeah. kind of a thing. That's definitely not the, uh, the impression that you would have. You, I kind of thought it was from uh, – he was secretary, basically aide de camp to George Washington. So when it's a uh, he, he had a way of positioning himself in the right place. I'll put it that way. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff with all that. Um, now Hamilton uh, too, because we covered in the uh, the Aaron Burr episode, uh, the rivalry between those two dudes. Yeah. I mean, that's still going on to this day, depending on what bank you were at. Um, <laughs> but uh, Morris refers Hamilton for uh, the secretary of the treasury, and he also cre- is credited by George Washington. So. You're going to put your boy Hamilton in power over here as the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, one of the most you know, fascinating Americans uh, in all of history. And then uh, George Washington himself credits his victory at Yorktown uh, pretty much directly to Robert Morris, who in the final years of the revolution is literally paying for shit with his own money. Uh, so when Washington's marching down to Yorktown, which by the way is where the Navy still takes on weapons in Yorktown. So on my first tour on the USS Kearney, I got to see uh, Jacksonville, Florida which was great. Um, then we got to go to Yorktown, Virginia, uh, which um, very concerning as we talked about here one time that uh, that's a port you're not allowed to be on your cell phone in or you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes uh, for fear of exploding ordnance. And then they told me to go weld something, <laughs> which I know we talked about on the Zeppelin episode. A little disheartening. Uh, but uh, yeah, then I got to see that. And then um, my final trip on the USS Kearney, uh, they brought me to uh, New York City. Lynette, you ever been? I have. You ever yeah. grow up next to it your whole life? <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, all the sailors are like, oh, we're going to New York. And I'm sitting there in my head like, all right, if I take leave upon arrival, um, they made me party in New York City for two days, too, leading up to that, which I thought was interesting. Were you there during Fleet Week or just a random week? The Henry Hudson Festival. We were the only ship, so it was a mini Fleet Week, which was pretty cool. Uh, you cannot buy a drink in uniform in New York City. Have you experienced that? Yes. It's pretty great. Um, and when I was a cadet. Uh, see, that's a good problem to have then. Um. <laughs> Which was, I wasn't even of age, but we always had to march in like the St. Patrick's Day parade. And nice. Yeah, it's it's wild. You just no, they're good. Uh, now, if you want to know how expensive those drinks are, too, I went to Yankee Tavern um, in the, the Bronx, right across the street from uh, the stadium, and uh, we had to walk away because we had too many drinks lining up in front of us, where they had to put overturned shot glasses to signify how many drinks we had left, and we literally had to leave for fear of my friend Larry Madison dying. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, who's a chief in the Navy, too, by the way. <laughs> um, he's a listener, too. I love you, bud. But um, it's a big deal. The Dave. next day, yeah, the next day we uh, we went back um, in civilian clothes because uh, I went to uh, a game with my buddy Tristan, who's been a guest on the show. And I remember handing, uh, I said, let me get a shot of Jameson. And I handed the guy $20. And then he signified to me, like, where's the rest of it? So I think there were like, it was like $20 shots of whiskey or something like that. It was, yeah, pretty bad. We learned the hard way. Uh, people are very generous. They like the military. They do. It's so, it's, it's so uncomfortable when I like go to pay my bill if we just go out to a diner and they're like, somebody already took care of it. I'm like, guys, I make money. I'm like, your taxes pay my salary. Let me buy my own dinner. Also true. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a good feeling to have though. It's, um, you know, it's unsettling. Uh, not to get completely off topic here, but uh, as comics... Uh, we are tragically underpaid. Yeah. So if you find out someone does comedy, buy them a cup of coffee, man. They're not doing good. Oh my gosh, you know? no. Is there going to be a comic uniform then? Uh, there essentially is. It's uh, I, Lynette and I are both wearing it. It's uh, hooded sweatshirts. Um, gotcha. <laughs> hooded sweatshirts, right. comfortable pants, and non-restrictive shoes. Um, I'll look out for that next time. Don't yeah. forget the hunched shoulders and look of defeat before you even take the stage. Gotcha. That's, gotcha. Yeah. Do you see? Yeah, you guys realize that um, Lynette, just uh, if you're keeping score at home, uh, did not flinch when talking about dealing with ISIS overseas. But when talking about the open mic scene in New York, she goes, <laughs> My God, the shit I've seen. <laughs> Lynette actually lit a cigarette while talking about the grizzly pear. That was weird. Um, <laughs> um Back to our boy Robert Morris here. I apologize. That's my fault for that tangent. Um, it, uh, now, when you have the Battle of Yorktown, uh, Washington's marching his men in there, but the only way that he's able to uh, sit in camp and kind of starve Cornwallis out is you have the French Navy uh, blocking off uh, the ships from resupplying, right? So the French Navy has arrived, and now Yorktown, they're marching in, and they surround Cornwallis. They're able to eventually get Cornwallis to realize that uh, the land war in America is over. So it pretty much ends the land war. Cornwallis surrenders. And Washington credits our boy Robert Morris with being the key factor in that because Robert Morris was able to uh, uh, get the supplies, move cattle in, uh, weapons, gunpowder, clothing, everything you could possibly need in order to get this war won. So in a way, I guess, thank God for Robert Morris. Interesting guy. Sounds like it. Well, uh, we owe him pretty big. Uh, If he's funding the final years of the revolution, we now have a country of our own. Uh, This is where it gets interesting for him. He serves a couple of terms in Congress. And he uh, promotes that whole capitalist laissez-faire, which, by the way, just means hands-off. Uh, that's essentially what that means, if you don't understand. We say laissez-faire because I want to seem more sophisticated than I am. But uh, it's not working. I still have a dumb Jersey accent when I say it. Uh, you got a great voice, man. It's um, – actually, we had uh, – uh, my friend Joe Carney uh, sent something over to us. He goes, uh, he goes, I want you to know. He goes, you have a very nice voice on radio, but your father's voice could melt butter. Really? Yeah. And he's not wrong either. I've had um, uh, people in church have come up to my father before and said how nice his singing voice is. So he can literally do everything. Um, I think my dad's like just a straight Errol Flynn, if that makes any sense. I didn't know your dad was a singer. Uh, well, we learned a, we learned a hard way growing up in the house, didn't we, Carrie? Um, you mean with the Irish music playing? Yeah, that um, you'd be uh, you'd come home from school or whatever, and then uh, Dad would walk in from work, and then uh, he'd go into the shower because he worked construction stuff like that, and then uh, you would just hear this deep bass voice uh, singing uh, uh, pretty much old school Irish folk music uh, coming from the shower, and uh, so that's how we learned that our father had a good singing voice. Everybody else got to find out at church in some sort of a respectable manner, not um, <laughs> yeah. 
not our dad singing songs about uh, you know stealing a cabbage to stay alive another winter kind of a thing. <laughs> oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. He, uh, uh, well, you know, you're going to think I'm making this up. Uh, he's in South Beach right now, right? He's hanging out. Uh, he is coming home March 1st because he refuses to miss St. Patrick's Day season. Season. It's yeah. a season for him. It is. <laughs> well, he plays in a, a couple of uh, marching bands, actually. Carrie, you remember that one, too. Tri-County Pipes, right? Yeah, bagpipe band. So, and you play the drums, right? No, you play the pipes. No, I played the pipes. You play, yeah, I hear you. It's, um, it's a weird thing, but Larry's real big on this, if you're not picking up on what we're talking about here. So, uh, the man who curses in Gaelic out in his wood shop. Uh, have you ever, because uh, you're Spanish, right? Yes. Okay. Um, now, do you have family members that uh, have a neutral accent, like an American accent, where and then when they get angry, go into Spanish? Uh, not really. My mom's accent's pretty, like, it sounds like any Puerto Rican from the Bronx would sound. But she's uh, from Brooklyn. So very Jennifer Lopez, understood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's weird how that stuff works out because Larry will um, develop an Irish accent. Uh, despite the fact that the Burks have been here since the start of the Civil War, hilarious. So he goes, uh, he goes about four or five generations back whenever he's uh, angry and he stubs his toe or something like that. But uh, our boy Morris is a fascinating guy here because now, after the war, uh, he does serve in Congress for a while and starts turning his attentions back primarily to his business. A lot of people accuse him of his time in Congress as uh, having a you know again encouraging the idea that down the road his shipping business could come into play heavily for, you know, American interests. Uh, he uh, expands the shipping enterprise, begins to purchase large amounts of land stretching from New York down to Georgia. It would take me from Wayne, New Jersey, where I live, uh, to Jacksonville, Florida, where I was living. I could do that drive in 15 hours. So in that entire time, you're pretty much driving through a lot of that land that is owned by Robert Morris. Wow. So he was uh, essentially becoming the first true real estate mogul in America. So back to our, uh, our original uh, Shark Tank endeavor. But uh, unfortunately for Morris, uh, he thought that this thing was going to happen because he saw the untapped potential of America. And he said, uh, as soon as we kick the British out of here, the middle class and the wealthy of all the rest of Europe are going to want to come over here. So he's thinking that the Habsburg dynasty is going to start coming over, uh, the Prussians, as we talked about earlier. He thought the French were coming, and as you know, you kind of indicated, Lynette, uh, France has some problems coming up in the near future. Uh, it's not good when your revolution ends in something known as the reign of terror. It doesn't inspire confidence. And uh, we celebrate Fourth of July over here. They celebrate Bastille Day where they murdered a bunch of people. Yeah. So a little bit uncomfortable. The guillotine. Yeah, uh, known as the National Razor, by the way. That's what they called it when they would chop people's heads off over there. And the guy Robespierre, who was the head of the French Revolution, if you will, the intellectual uh, genius behind it, uh, also got his fucking head chopped off. So not really uh, – not conducive to mass immigration and uh, creating a new society in America like that uh, Morris thought was going to happen over here. So the people aren't coming over. It takes him about 100 years. So this is how far ahead of uh, his time this guy is. He's actually – he's right eventually that mass immigration is going to come over and that land is going to become incredibly valuable. But it's just not valuable yet. It's almost like that. Uh, I don't know if you guys watch Silicon Valley. No. No, uh, Silicon yeah, Valley. I did. It was a uh, it was a really good show for the first three seasons. Um, <laughs> but uh, they essentially built a uh, a compression thing that it was just so ahead of its time. People didn't know how to use it. So in thirty years from now, we're going to be like, this is the greatest thing ever. But we don't understand how to use it yet. So that's what's happening with the land value over here. When that mass immigration doesn't take place, Morse begins to realize now that he is overpaid for land that holds little to no value. 
So uh, you want to talk about uh, a real estate bubble. Uh, Robert Morris created the first in American history. Kind of fucked ourselves on that one. Morris is still at the time, though, considered to be one of the wealthiest men in America. He even owned, if you want to know, you got money. Um, when Philadelphia was still the capital, uh, we didn't have a White House yet. So Washington and John Adams both lived in what was known as the President's House in Philadelphia. Morris owned that. You own the fucking White House. Yeah. It's You can have Washington in your pocket, but if you are actually the landlord of the head of the free world, I mean, that's kind of uh, – it's kind of a good position to find yourself in. But uh, because of this whole President's Mansion here, uh, uh, he's also a big high society guy. We talk about his joke of the sober man. So Morris is boozing it up all the time. He's having these big lavish parties. He's a uh, uh, considerably – he's such a big fat guy too in his portrait. Like it is not an endearing portrait. You know, um, When I have headshots done for comedy or whatever, I hate doing that. But uh, I literally have a move where I pull my neck all the way forward and I open my eyes up a little wider so I won't look um, as pale and fat. And uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Right, But uh, Robert Morris actually has a painting done of him, and it, it breaks my heart to know how much money and how much time had to go into sitting for that painting and to commission an artist to do this. And then they actually still paint his lower chin. So he's got multiple chins in his own portrait where he probably looked at it and he's like, you can't airbrush the shit out of this? I mean, come on, man. Fucking work with me. Yeah, definitely not a flattering portrait of him. No. Uh, big guy. But uh, love to booze. Love to have a good time here. And now he's made all these moves that he knows are eventually going to be advantageous. But it blows up in his face. Uh, he owns the president's house. He's re routinely invited over by the presidents to hang out at their parties. But, uh, yeah, as soon as you don't have money anymore, people don't really want to deal with you. That's an unfortunate side effect of all this. Um, Morris has gone into debt in order to acquire all of that land. Uh, but he was so confident it would quickly become profitable that he commissioned as he purchased it. So he's already racking up massive amounts of debt. All right. Uh, Lynette, you went to college, right, you said? Mm -hmm. How much student debt do you still have? Zero. Oh, the military, I forgot. Yeah, no. When you spend most of your 20s deployed, you can pay that shit off quickly. It is pretty good. Or you can buy a girl a house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a recurring theme here. I'm not bitter. Um, but uh, like we said now, he uh, he's so confident that this land is going to prove to be uh, tremendously valuable to him that he thinks he's about to triple uh, his own empire or his own personal wealth. And he commissions a renowned French architect – to design literally a block-long mansion in Philadelphia. Okay, so I'm not saying that uh, – what corner do you live on? Oh, I, I live on the corner. I own the entire block. It's my fucking mansion. And the mansion was uh, designed uh, by an architect. And it's actually uh, – it's known as Morris's Folly, okay, because uh, he can't afford it. And he realizes that as they're about to start construction on this thing. So one of the greatest mansions in the entire world. It would be the coolest. It would be like – Essentially, America having a castle. This is supposedly it would have dwarfed Monticello and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. It would have been amazing. Right there in the heart of Philadelphia, which means we'd probably be selling cheesesteaks out of it now. Um, but what winds up happening is he can't afford this thing, and uh, they scrap it. It's known as Morris's Folly. Uh, at the time, by the way, this is pretty insane here. Um, the land doesn't prove a v uh, valuable here. And in the 1700s, uh, we see something known as an economic downturn. Uh, that was the Panic of 1797. All right, that means that Morris is now at the time twelve million dollars in debt. Just a little bit. Yeah, uh, adjusted for inflation, one hundred seventy-seven million dollars today due to inflation. So just him. Yep, just him. 
couldn't pay uh, anything back here. Now, uh, also heartbreaking here is that around this time frame, in 1798, um, he realizes he's – first of all, he's trying to stay away from his creditors. So you know how um, – it's happened on this show before where I've had to not answer an 800 number because I know <laughs> that they're looking for money I don't have. All right. So essentially Morris is doing that at this time frame. He's barring his creditors from coming to his house and visiting him. So he's dodging, trying to get out of the debt here. Now, debt as we know it, we're all joking about this. I think all of us, maybe except for Ming, I don't know, we're all operating at a deficit right now. I know I am for sure. Um, but uh, we joke about having debt here. If you couldn't pay your debts back in the day, they threw your ass in jail. Yeah. All right? So in 1798, Robert Morris is now realizing that he is not able to pay back the $12 million that he owes. He's never going to get out of that debt either. So he goes ahead. He turns himself into the Philadelphia Sheriff's Office. And he says, hey, guys, uh, it's me, Robert Morris, guy who single-handedly funded the revolution, uh, kind of a financial wizard, one of the founding fathers, signed all three documents, all right, uh, making you know this country uh, the promise of being one of the greatest in the entire history of the world. Um, can't pay my debts. And they say, uh, okay, just uh, – we'll get a cell for you. Threw this motherfucker in jail for three and a half years. For three and a half years, Robert Morris is spending uh, – he's in jail at Walnut Street Prison, which – I don't know about Walnut Street. just doesn't sound nice. If you're in Philly, it's concerning to begin with. Now you're in prison in Philly. Um, it was just like a nice cushy prison because he had a, you know used to have a lot of money. I don't think – well, because he doesn't have the money anymore. So when you were in debt, there was no – because this is actually really uh, important. I'm glad you said that. There's no Wolf of Wall Street resort in the Hamptons. It's not a Goodfellas uh, Italian restaurant kind of a prison. <laughs> right, he's not going out to the tennis court for the afternoon. And yeah, they're not slicing garlic with razor blades, so it tastes like home. Um, <laughs> no conjugal visits. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just probably wasn't voluntary um, or consensual. Um, it gets uncomfortable to talk about that part. But uh, the poor bastard is in fucking prison three and a half years. Uh, May uh, – eight, sorry, 1801, he's released from prison. Thanks in part due to literally what you were talking about earlier, Kerry, the Bankruptcy Act of 1800. So this weird period of uh, economic downturn following the Panic of 1797, uh, the entire economy goes to shit. And they're like, oh, if everyone's in debt, we can't put everyone in prison because then in prison we have to give them meals and we can't tax anyone to pay for the meals because everyone's in prison. So we kind of fucked ourselves on that one. Uh, they go ahead. This is actually based off an English policy too, which the more you study American history, you realize we just took whatever England was doing and we changed it a little bit, called it our own, you know, kind of a Robin Williams kind of an effect. But uh, so now this panic of 1797 spurs them to pass the Bankruptcy Act of 1800, which uh, essentially combined with a bunch of his friends kind of working, you know, uh, on weird clauses in his real estate, uh, you know, mogul business. They actually get Morris out of prison, and they barely have enough money for his wife to be able to afford a small house. Outside of Philadelphia. Imagine the drastic turn of events that within like five years, uh, the president is literally inviting you over his house because you technically own his house. And then now your husband gets thrown in jail because he didn't pay his debts. And now you're living in a small house outside of Philly. It's, uh, it's well, drastic. Fall from grace. Right. Uh, well said. Um, now, uh, on May 8th, 1806... Uh, Morris would pass away with little to no remembrance of a man who single-handedly funded the final years of the American Revolution. There was no public notice. He remained financially destitute for pretty much the rest of his life. So never really bounced back after that one. Um, and it sucks too because Morris has had several honors bestowed on him but all like you know way after he was dead. 
So when he died, we're just like, oh, hey, you hear Robert Morris died? Hmm? Bob. Bob. (laughs) (laughs) We had uh, many parks and uh, naval vessels have been named in his honor. There's actually a university, Robert Morris University, is named after him. And his estate in Morrisville, Pennsylvania, okay, which is named after Morristown is not named after Morrisville. Is, is it the small house that his wife had to move into? Uh, that would be the ultimate, um, the ultimate fuck you move. You know what I mean? We're like, oh, and this is Robert Morris's little shit house. Uh, you know. <laughs> it's a little outhouse back there. Yeah, it's, it's weird. This house has wheels on it. That's uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, he actually uh, his summer home. This is a little weird caveat we found. Uh, his summer home is known as a summer seat, okay? And it's actually listed as a National Historical Landmark, but it has absolutely no mention of Robert Morris's life. They just say, oh, yeah, it's this gorgeous thing. They don't mention the fact that this was the summer home of one of the guys who signed again. I know I'm reiterating, but holy shit, you're going three for three, Declaration, Articles of Confederation, and Constitution. It's, you're one of the most important men in American history. They don't even mention that you lived in your own house now. See, nowadays someone would have capitalized on that, toured around the country saying, I signed all three. Here's my autograph. Yeah, that's also I – mean, uh, I mean look what Charlie Sheen was able to do and he didn't sign any of those documents. <laughs> right. So. That, but that's how uh, Mark Twain uh, got his big break, doing that stuff. He, uh, he was like a tinkerer. Like he really loved inventions and stuff. Yep. And uh, he was besties with Tesla. And so he put all his money into this bullshit – typing machine thing that quickly became outdated before it got even perfected. And so to pay off his debts, he went on a speaking tour. And he was essentially the first stand-up comic. People thought he was hysterical. Mark Twain. Not bad. Good old Samuel Clemens. Samuel Clemens. you got to do an episode on him. He is... um, Although he's not really a loser. I wouldn't call him a loser. No, he's come up a couple times because he's an interesting guy. Uh, He fell in with um, a lot of the... uh, the, I guess you call him the Gilded Age presidents, where he was uh, he was very popular for his opinion on stuff, and he was known as a mugwump, which we covered uh, in the first episode of the show, oddly. But um, Twain's a cool guy. I didn't realize the uh, the first stand up comic thing. I was not aware of that, so that's yeah, pretty great. He paid off his debts doing speaking tours. People thought he was like a rock. And I'm not talking like throughout the U.S. I mean, he went to India, Australia, everywhere. Uh-huh. So I just picture. Um, Mark Twain now with uh, the giant bushy mustache and his Einstein hair mm-hmm. humping a stool. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everybody, you know, Mark Twain tearing it up out there. I'm not afraid of you motherfuckers. Well, that's when there were all these gentlemen clubs, you know, no, the He-Man woman haters clubs. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's also known as compound media. <laughs> no, I love those guys over there. I mean, they were good to us on that. Um, now, Morris, uh, which I did think was interesting here. He's actually, uh, and we're going to go out on this one here for our our weird left turn um, of how he is memorialized. But uh, that being said, real quick, I do want to say thank you so much to uh, Ming doing our sound force behind the ones and twos, sir. Uh, Quality filling, as always. Anytime. I appreciate it. Well, you haven't haven't heard if I messed up the episode or not, but uh, I'm pretty confident. No, you're good. If it's uh, literally, if it's just, um, uh, as long as we don't pull a kahuna, where uh, kahuna has 15 hours of uh, in-between sessions recorded. (laughs) Um, but no, I'm glad to be back here, man. You know this place is home for us. Uh, thank you for uh, what you and Mike do, uh, giving us uh, the access to the studio and everything. Uh, I want to thank my sister, uh, the meanest girl in all of New Jersey. Uh, Carrie, where can people find you? What aisle? Um, all around the store of Home Depot. I'm a freight associate now. So she doesn't even deal with customers I, I anymore. Go everywhere. No, I, I got out of that one. And uh, Oh, not bad. Take that and yeah. run. Uh, I got um, This episode's going to be coming out on uh, this coming Tuesday here, so uh, obviously it's Tuesday, Tuesday. Um, my website is uh, kpburkcomic.com. Please check me out on there. I have a lot of fun on social media. Uh, 
I'm having more fun over on Facebook than Twitter. But if you're on Twitter or Instagram, at KP Burke Sucks, uh, we are putting up more links to the episode. Uh, please check us out on that one. We're going to start a uh, official American Loser Instagram we're going to be working on. Uh, it's going to have a lot of these weird photos that Kahuna and Ming sometimes pull up for us <laughs> that uh, we, we realize is lost in the audio medium that is podcasting. But uh, go ahead, check us out. If you can leave us a review on iTunes, uh, if you're enjoying the show, man, we're having a lot of fun with this. Uh, like I said, today's the last day without uh, South Beach Larry. We're going to be doing another episode shortly after this. Uh, it's going to be a really good time. But uh, then Larry's going to be back, and the handsome Dilf of a father will uh, bring back his uh, father-son dynamic that uh, a lot of the people are commenting on, which I appreciate. Uh, and lastly, I have to thank my friend uh, Lynette Paladino, sincerely, legitimately hilarious comic. Uh, really enjoy what you do. Um, Love to have you on the show, too, by the way. Thank you, sir. Where can people find you on social media, upcoming shows, anything you want to plug? I am Lynette Palladino, um, spelled like if you learned English at 14, like my mom did. <laughs> <laughs> Very phonetically Spanish. Um, uh, Tuesday night, I'm at Gotham Comedy Club for nice. Comedy Underground. Uh, Wednesday night, I'm in the midnight spot, technically Thursday morning at the Grizzly Pear. Uh, Thursday, I'm over in Bloomfield, New Jersey with uh, Gnome Promotions. And then Mike Jenkins, the fabulous Mike Jenkins, and I are doing a show Friday. And Saturday night, uh, I'm with Tracy Carnazzo at QED. Got to check that out. I just worked with her in uh, Long Island. Tracy's a very funny chick. She is. A good, good person, too. Exactly. All right, awesome. And then uh, anything else you want to plug? Or? No, no, that's it. I uh I'm not, I'm not very good at social media, but uh, if you follow me, you'll see pictures of my bulldogs uh, and my baby and occasionally my husband. Well, your baby has TV credits, too, which is important to cover. She has probably made more money than I have doing comedy this year. <laughs> um, I just uh, put out – because I was trying to figure out uh, how much uh, – how much longer I'd have to do comedy to owe as much money as Robert Morris did. And uh, I'm happy to say we're coming up on it, guys. All right? We're approaching. I will be in debtor's prison on Walnut Street in Philadelphia in probably the next fiscal year. So uh, that being said, have you guys ever been to um, the U.S. Capitol building? Uh, in D.C.? Yeah. Like yes. where Congress is? Yeah. Yeah. So you know that giant dome? Yes. You ever look at the painting up there in the dome? Oh, no. I was there on an eighth grade school field trip. I hear you have to go back. It's um, I haven't been in years, but uh, I remember being like in awe of that because I love old school paintings, especially like the, the, the Greek throwback style we have, which is all rooted in Freemasonry, but whatever. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Carrie and I went on a trip there, a family trip. You remember this? I remember the trip. I don't remember specific details. It's one of those things where uh, they call you a mouth breather um, <laughs> if you uh, walk around just like staring up at the sky or whatever. It's a, skylarking is actually the Navy term for it. But uh, I remember being blown away. Uh, like people were knocking into me in the Capitol building because I was just staring up at this painting in the dome of the Capitol building. Uh, now I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation of this, but that painting is known as the Apotheosis of Washington. Okay. One of the coolest things ever. That's where you get a lot of the um, the Lady Liberty stuff comes from. Uh, you know, um, th there's the, the whole god and goddesses thing that's kind of torn into uh, this idea of Eden. Uh, it's really just a beautiful fucking painting. But uh, in this painting, uh, wow. if you look over, so yeah, if you look over, it's all the founding fathers. Um, there's war scenes going on. It commemorates the American Revolution. If you look over, and I'm, it might be hard for Ming to find, so I know he's trying to pull it up in real time here. I will put this up on that Instagram for everybody. I uh, just thought this was mind blowing that. Uh, 
you got Washington with like an axe and all this other stuff, and he's surrounded by like you know uh, the, the this whole Greek Italian kind of a vibe they're going for. And then uh, Robert Morris is there, and guess what? Robert Morris is being handed uh, by the god Mercury, the Roman god Mercury, is literally handing him a bag of gold commemorating the fact that this entire country was founded on money that uh, Robert Morris was able to. Uh, and then he goes broke. Us. Yep. So. In a weird way. Maybe he's taking the bag of money from him. That's what makes you wonder is, uh, did Mercury actually fund the entire American Revolution? <laughs> I'm Alex Jones with InfoWars. <laughs> but, oh my gosh, that guy thought it was fun. So that's going to be a, a fun thing here. Now, uh, Ming actually pulled it up. You can see there that that's the, the Greek god Mercury is handing um, the bag of money over to Robert Morris. Because at the end of the day, you can have all the best ideas and you can have all the best soldiers and everything. But if you don't have the money, it's put up or shut up time. And we would not have a country today if it was not for Robert Morris, who, like we said, one of the wealthiest men in the entire country, died penniless. And that was Robert Morris, American Loser. Thank you, guys. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born.